direction, and I don't want you to think that I'm going against what I, I preached this morning about blessings. And man, there was a great <laughs> presence of God here. I like oh, blessings. One direction. Well, you remember though, I started on the material. <clears throat> and I like those. And um, probably whenever a preacher starts preaching about blessings, people tend to be pretty connected to that message because we like blessings, right? We like to be blessed. We like God's favor on us. We we like that fact. I mean, it, it's kind of died down a little bit, although it's still around. How many of you remember uh, the prayer of Jabez's book and how popular that was? It, it, it's a prayer. It's in the Bible. I don't think it's a wrong prayer necessarily, but uh, many grabbed hold of it. And probably if, if you have any knowledge of the prayer of Jabez at all, I would venture a guess that the part you remember most is the part that says enlarge my territory. Because we like that. We like that. Because blessings, they're just flat fun to preach about and sing about and worship God for. They're good to give. But I want to go a little farther than just the blessing, right? And especially in terms of material. And, and what we, we kind of pray and, and how we want it. I want to just preach real real simple uh, tonight. You got to bear the cross before you wear the crown. You got to bear the cross before you wear the crown. Father, we're so thankful today. You have, you've just been in our presence from the moment we got here. And I believe it will you'll continue to be when we leave this building tonight. And I pray once again as we open your word. Would you let us see your word, hear your word, and respond to your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I love uh, watching successful people, whatever that may, may be, whether it's uh, you know, someone who's an accomplished musician, someone who's an accomplished artist. It's cool to watch someone who we would look at and say they've been successful in their, in their field. And uh, there's a book I have, and I, I, I could have brought it here. I think I've even maybe quoted from it in times past, but it's a book by Malcolm Gadwell, and it's called Outliers, and it's a book about success. And there's this statement in there, because we look at people who are successful, and we tend to have this response. Man, I wish I could play like that. I wish I could sing like that. I wish I could draw like that. I wish I could build like that. Wouldn't that be cool? And you have... Uh, dreams and aspirations of doing that. But Malcolm Gadwell began to examine those that we look at and we say they have success. And he found something that pretty much is in every one of, or behind every one of their successes. And that is to become a master of your field. It almost always requires a sacrifice of 10,000 or more hours. Every uh, concert pianist or concert uh, violinist, you know, you think of those symphonies, if they're up there, it doesn't matter how old they are. That's what's interesting. It doesn't matter how old they are. Almost all of them, when they reach the pinnacle of success, they have in their life over 10,000 hours <coughs> of practice behind them. Now, you do the math. I, 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 don't like that. Uh, it's necessary, but I remember when my teacher uh, used to tell me, you'll, you, you, know, you can't walk around your life with a calculator always in your hand. 
So I mean, I'm not a great mathematician. I can do it if I take my time. But you do the hours. How many? If you practice one hour a day, it takes you ten thousand days. Roughly three years is ten thousand days. So you start. You practice two hours. You practice ten hours a day. They said behind every successful person, there is almost a sacrifice of ten thousand hours where they poured into their craft and. And if they're kids, then their parents were, yep. were helping them and making them and, and studying and investing in them. It's not, you don't just wake up one day, pick up the violin, pick up the guitar, pick up a paintbrush, and you're the best in your field. There's always a cost yeah. to that. Oh, I would love it. I wish, I, I've said it a lot. I wish I could play the piano. I would love to be able to play the piano. Here in the church. I'd love to just be able to sit down and play. I can play the saxophone. I've invested a lot of time and effort behind the saxophone. Uh, I, I can play the guitar. I haven't invested near enough time behind the guitar, which is why I can't play it as good as I play the saxophone. I know that there is an investment before you reap the benefits, but wouldn't it be a blessing if you could just sit down and play Yeah. Wouldn't it be a blessing if you could just sit down and paint something again to the Mona Lisa? But you gotta wear, you got to bear the cross before you wear the crown. Here's the problem with blessings. And, and this is not uh, this is not part two of this morning's message. This morning's message stands alone in its own uh, uh, sermon, and, and it had a little bit different ring to it. And if you were here, you understand. If you weren't here, go listen. But you can't just preach or believe or say I'm just going what we kind of colloquially call a, a name it and claim it type blessing. You don't just say, I want a blessing from God. God's going to give it to me. It's not a blab and grab it type thing. It's not something that you just desire and want. I believe that if God is going to bless us, there has to be some form of preparation before God says, here you go. And I think that blessings in all of our lives are preceded by some form of preparation. Even as I mentioned this morning, I'm blessed because I'm saved. Well, first off, there's a whole lot that Jesus had to do to get me to where I could be saved. But even that, I had to prepare my heart on an altar of repentance. And if that's all I had to do, that's enough for me to tell you there's preparation that precedes the blessing. There was a man that walked into one of those vending machines at the hospital. You know, the ones where you the, the cup drops down and all that. You know, you get your coffee and pour some sugar in it. It's pretty cool. Well, he... Uh, Got the vending machine, put in his money, and pressed the button, and he, he wanted coffee, cream, double cream, and he wanted sugar, and so he, he did it. The problem was, no cup fell down. And the coffee poured out, and then the cream came out, and then the sugar, and he watched, kind of bewildered, as the proper amounts of coffee and stuff had gone down the drain, and the machine turned off, and he turned to the guy beside him, and he said, well, that was interesting. This machine even drinks it for you. <laughs> But that's how some people want their faith. That's how some people want the blessing. I'll just go to God's vending machine. I'll put the right deposit in, if you will. Maybe put some money and let the rest be taken care of automatically. But I've lived long enough to know there's no such thing as automated prayers. There's no such thing as automated devotion. There's no such thing as automated worship. There is preparation involved. So would you let me walk down a few verses real quick. I, I don't ever one of these I guess could be their own sermon, but let me just hit on a few. I like 2 Kings chapter 3 and verse 7. 
I'm not necessarily going to read it word for word. If you've got your Bibles, feel free to follow with me. But uh, let me paraphrase a little bit. The prophet goes to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and he says, the, the uh, king of Moab's rebelled against me. What am I going to do? Which way should I go? And, and well, here's what you need to do. Go up to the way of, of Edom. And then, then Jehoshaphat pushes for the prophet a little bit more. Is there not a prophet we can inquire by? And then, here's Elisha. Elisha comes. And what should we do? They brought some music, had a little church service, if you will. And then Elijah inquires of the Lord, what should I tell the king? He's about to face an enemy that's greater than he, larger army, bigger army, maybe more well supplied. What should I do? And the Bible says that, thus saith the Lord, this is verse 16 of 2 Kings chapter 7, thus saith the Lord, make this valley full of ditches most oddest way to get ready for a war I've ever heard of. We're not even talking about trench warfare. I mean, it would make sense if he said dig a bunch of trenches and hide yourself in. We said, no, just dig a bunch of ditches and, and you will not see wind, you'll not see rain, but that valley will be filled with water that you may drink, both you and your cattle and your beasts. But this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord and he'll deliver the Moabites also in your hand and it goes on to say you'll destroy them, you'll smite every great city and all of that and and, but, but before there's victory, you got to dig a ditch. And, and you say, well, why is that? If you're not familiar with the story, here's why. Because the next morning, when it came to pass that Edom opened up their eyes, came out of their tents, and they looked over into that, uh, that valley, and the country and all the ditches were filled with water. And the Bible says that the sun shone on the water at just the right angle. And it looked like, it made that look like they were all filled with blood. And they thought in the middle of the night their allies had been slaughtered by Israel. And so for whatever reason it caused them to go into a panic. So much that they began to fight amongst themselves. And Israel was able to defeat them. But the thing I understand is there's no victory until they dug some ditches. Now, that's hard work. And it probably made no sense to those doing it. Why are we digging these little ditches when we should be prepared to fight a battle, but God says, I just want to see if you're willing to bear the cross before I let you wear the crown. In 2 Kings chapter 4, and I have preached this many, many times, it's Elisha and the woman that, that needed some money or that her sons were being sold to the creditors. And he said, here's what you need to do. Go out amongst your neighbors and get some vessels together, not a few, and then come in and you know that little cruise of oil that you have? Just start pouring them into all the vessels. And, and the Bible says when the vessels were full, when there were no more empty vessels, the oil stopped flowing. But what she had poured into them was enough for her to sell and repay the creditors. And I began to realize there's no oil until you go get the vessels. Can you help me read between the lines today? That if she wouldn't have got out and got her and her sons and went and borrowed vessels and knocked on doors, there would have been no room for a miracle. We love to celebrate the fact that there were, you know, 30 gallons of oil that came from a little cruise. We love to celebrate the miracle, but we sometimes forget the preparation before. There's no oil until the vessels are getting. There's no healing until Naaman dips seven times. Again, man, God is a God that cleanses the leper. I love it. I, I'm thankful for that. But nothing happens if Naaman doesn't dip seven times. 
Is it a measure of his faith? Yes. Is it a matter of obedience? Absolutely. But it's preparation. Naaman, will you bear the cross? If you will, you can wear the crown. Hosea 10, 12 says, Sow to yourself in righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord till he come and rains righteousness upon you. And the understanding that every farmer or anybody that's ever planted a garden knows is you don't make, you don't get a harvest unless you first break the ground up. Then you plant some seed and then you water that seed, maybe fertilize that seed. There's a lot of work that happens even though we know God gives the increase. It's John. The book of John chapter 9 verse 6 where he says of Jesus, that Jesus, when he had spoken, spit on the ground, made the clay of that mud, that, that, that clay and mud and spittle, and he puts it on the eyes of the blind man, and he tells him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he goes, therefore, he washes, and he came away seeing. Now, I, I'll be honest, I have not met, and I've not met, I've not read, I've not heard one sermon that makes any sense out of this. None. There's no theological explanation for this that I can tell. I have never in all of my life, 40 years of listening to sermons, I've never heard one preacher make some incredible reference that makes me go, wow, that's why Jesus did it. He had to walk. I don't know how, how far he had to go, but he had to go with mud in his eyes. He had to walk down. I'm sure people made fun of him, but I kind of think maybe the reason is God says, are you willing to bear the cross before you wear the crown? Are you willing to do what I say? Isaiah tells us there's no Messiah until the way has been prepared. It was John the Baptist. There's no reconciliation without repentance. In John chapter 11 and verse 39, that's the story of Lazarus. We understand there's no resurrection unless somebody moves the stone. Again, allow me to interject my own craziness in the word of God. It's dangerous. I'm not trying to be uh, disrespectful to it. I'm not trying to add. But I just wonder what would have happened if nobody would roll the stone would they have walked away and Jesus standing there going, or better yet, Jesus says Lazarus come forth and he gets as far as the block stone and then they all walk away and Lazarus still in there like, <laughs> there's no resurrection until the stone removed. There's no entrance into heaven, Revelation says, without cleansing. You've got to bear the cross before you wear the crown. Preparation precedes the blessing. There's something that it costs you and I when we see it. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by the story of Joseph. Uh, I believe it was earlier this year. I think it was this year. Although time is moving very quickly. I believe it was this year that we took some Wednesday nights and separated the men and the women and had a ladies class upstairs, men's class downstairs. And I uh, did the story of, of, of uh, Joseph a little bit. Um, but, but I'm, I'm reminded when it says that Joseph, he's in Potiphar's house. Everything is going well. Joseph has basically control of, of Potiphar's finances and Potiphar's uh, household doings. And he's there. But after a time, Potiphar's wife looks at Joseph and begins to tempt him. Lie with me. Come with me. Let's have an affair. You know, all of this day in and day out, the Bible says. And, and Joseph keeps telling her, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. It's because of me. That your husband doesn't have to worry about anything in this house. He's put all of this in my charge. I carry a great responsibility. And I'm blessed to be in Potiphar's house. And I'm not going to mess it up by you. And so I can't do 
this wickedness. And I find it very interesting that Joseph didn't say, I can't make Potiphar mad. Joseph said, I can't do this great wickedness against God. That's called integrity, if you remember that. But she spoke to Joseph day by day. And he wouldn't listen. He wouldn't get close to her. He, he was a, a man of character. But one day while he was in the house, no one else was there. She came and she caught him. She grabbed him by the arm or whatever it was, threw herself on him and, and said, lie with me. And he took off running. And the Bible says he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. It's the second coat that Joseph lost. Now, I'm sure, and, and you can decide in your own commentary, your own understanding. Some say that when he left, he was... Start naked. He had left everything behind. She stripped it, ripped it all off. Maybe it was just the outer coat. I don't know. But it cost him something right there. He had to leave something behind. But here's the thing. It still caused him to end up in prison. She lied and fluttered her eyelids and eyelashes at Potiphar and said, oh, look what he did. And she had this proof, if you will. And uh, uh, Potiphar threw him in prison, and I'm sure Joseph was sitting there going, man, I didn't deserve this, but here's the thing. If he didn't leave that coat behind, he'd have still ended up in prison, but then there wouldn't have been the blessing of God that would have walked him through those times in prison. It will cost you to wear the crown. you got to learn to leave some things behind, to live a life of integrity, but in the end, it's worth it. All of us, now, I know we can look and, and sometimes we can say, man, look at all the stuff I've left behind and it was awful and I get that. But some of us and some of you here, even living for God costs you some things. But it's worth it to bear the cross because at the end you wear the crown. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 says it this way. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Which when a man finds it, he covers it up, and then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys the field. It's been preached ever which way, but let me just remind you, you don't get the treasure <coughs> if you don't buy the field. That field comes with boundaries. That field comes with fences. That field comes with a cost. I don't know, maybe I, I just opened up... It's that time of year, you know, a wonderful time of year when you start getting all your personal property tax uh, forms. Anybody else got any yet this year? I got mine. And uh, you, you open that up, and that's what it costs you to own property, not much, notwithstanding mortgage or anything else like that. That's what it costs on it. There's boundaries. There's costs. But that man went and said, I'm going to pay the, the, for this field because I know what's in it, and I'm willing to bear the cost of, of whatever it that they require. I'm pretty confident when that man went to whoever owned the field and said, hey, Jerry, you know that field over there that's just kind of laying? I want to buy that field. Now, if you're like me and that field's not for sale, see, I, I, who, who somebody, I mean, I've heard it, but somebody said everything's for sale for the right price. Um, I mean, you give me enough money, Zane's yours. He, he, he can have it. <laughs> but everything's for sale. And, and, and so you, you go and you say, hey, I want to buy that field. And the guy goes, well, you know, Zillow tells me it's worth, you know, $100,000. But tell you what, it's for sale for $300,000. I'm pretty confident that man didn't negotiate one bit because he knew what was in the field. 
and he knew what was in the field far was far more valuable than any cost that might be associated with it. And he said, I'm willing to bear the cross, willing to bear the cost, because I know what's coming. There's treasure after Story of Ruth, beautiful story. Story that that is is both a historical story. It's also an allegorical story in the sense that it, it shows that kinsman redeemer in its in its beauty. Uh, Ruth, who had really no business being a part of, of the kingdom of God, when when a famine came, uh, their family. Naomi and her husband and her two children, two boys, left and, and went to Moab. They had no business being in Moab, but they thought maybe they could go into the world and weather the storm better than, than Bethlehem was. And there, uh, the two sons, Malon and Chilion, got married and have Orpah. You've got Ruth, these Moabitan princesses. And, and, and they're, they're married, and then the, 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 the husband dies, and then the two sons die. And you've got three widows. And, Kind of in a bad spot. And so it is that Naomi says, I'm just going to go back to my, my home there and, or, or you know, my family there in uh, uh, Bethlehem. And why don't you stay in Moab? And of course, you know the story over for but didn't she went this way? And Ruth said, I'll go. And wherever you go, I'm going. Wherever, whoever your God is, that's going to be my God. Now you have two widows in town. And no one, no one to, to help them. And so the law of the gleaning comes in. And Ruth decides to just walk into a field and whatever falls from the harvest she can keep. And there was some laws going all the way back to Deuteronomy and Leviticus about that. And just so happens she alights in Boaz's field. The story goes that Boaz looks at her. He, and she catches his eye and tells the ones working with him, hey, drop a little extra, if you will, when you're picking it up. Just really make it easy for her. And in fact, let her harvest right on your heels. That way nobody else gets any of it. Just, I mean, just really bless her. And Boaz does that. There's a lot that goes on. Love story begins to envelop. Envelop, rather. And uh, Boaz desires to marry Ruth. The problem is, the law of the land says there's this thing called a kinsman and if you marry someone, you also have to take all of the responsibilities to do it. So Boaz decides that he goes into town and he sits down at the gates of the city. Gates, for whatever reason, that's where all the business took place. Sat there in the gates and he got 10 of the elders to come down and they all sat down and while they're waiting, the nearest kinsman to Naomi walks by. And as he walks by, Boaz says, hey, come, come and sit with me. And so the kinsman sits down and he, he says, I was thinking about something. I found that Naomi is selling a parcel of land that, that relates to, to our relative Elimelech. And, you know, she, she's kind of in a bad spot. She's got to get rid of it. She needs the money. And uh, you're the... You know, you're the closest redeemer, and um, I, I would like to buy it, but, but really, I, I, you've got to be the one that buys it. This parcel of land, everything is, and 
And, um, you know, just let me know if you want to redeem it, it's yours. If not, then I'm next in line and we'll, we'll walk there. And that man thought about it, probably knew exactly what that portion of, of land looked like. And he, he said, you know what, I'll redeem it. That sounds good. I'd, I'd love to add to my, my collection of land. It? I can grow some good crops. And Boaz smiles. Boaz says, but there's one other thing. There's a cost to that land. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire the hand of Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his And the Redeemer thought for a moment, and he said, that cost is too much. I can't, I mean, there was one thing if you wanted me to go to the land, but to pick up, you know, Ruth, she's a Moabite first, and second, you know, kind of begins to mess with my own inheritance and my own families perhaps and my own, you know, things that I'm, I can't redeem it. So I give you the right as the next of kin to redeem it. So it is. Weird custom. Glad kind of we don't do that now. But they take off their shoes and they exchange <clears throat> one of their sandals and that sealed the covenant. And Boaz understood something. As much as he wanted Ruth, it came with a price. But Boaz, in his love for Ruth, if you just want to put it as a beautiful love story, but if you want to put it more spiritually, Boaz realized the reward far outweighed the cost. And so it was that Boaz was willing to buy the field. He was willing to bear the cost of that inheritance. I don't know, maybe it did push some other things on him, like that, like the, the first redeemer said, it would, it would hinder my inheritance. Maybe, maybe there's some truth to that. I don't know. There it goes. But Boaz said, ah, the cost Generally. of the field. Yep. It's nothing compared to the reward. Did a little bit, now it's not doing it. Boaz took root, she became his wife. They bore a son. They named him o uh, Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. Walk that generation, that lineage down, and you'll get to Jesus. And none of that would have been possible. Boaz wouldn't have counted the cost. He said the reward is worth it. Simple message, I know. But I believe in your life and in my life there are moments where we have to step back and say, I want the roof and I want the treasure and I, I want the miracle and I want the victory. But have you decided to pay the cost that leads up to that? Have you decided to do the steps? Have you prepared yourself so that the blessings of God can come? Because I believe preparation will always precede the blessings. And even in our life, when I preached a message this morning about I am blessed, I also have to look back in my life and realize I've tried to do my very best to put myself in a place where I can say, Lord, I'm willing to bear the cross because ultimately I'm going to wear the crown. And we stand in this place today. Would you just begin to close your eyes? I don't know what blessing you desire. I don't know what field you would love to, you know, what treasure, what field, I don't know all of that. 
But I wonder if you could just say, God, I'm willing to bear the cross. I'm willing to pay the cost. Because, God, I realize the reward is greater. If living for you costs a little bit, that's all right. I'm willing to live for you and pay that cost. Because the blessings and the rewards of living a life for you far outweigh anything it may cost me. In Jesus' name. I wonder if we could just end our service today around this altar.